Welcome back, everyone. I'm Brad Wolverton, the host of Sports Scholarship Stories and a longtime chronicler of college sports. A few years ago, I wrote a piece called The Myth of the Sports Scholarship. And over the years, I've spoken to hundreds of college athletes, coaches, and NCAA insiders about the things colleges look for in scholarship athletes. My goal with this show is to share insights I've learned and to introduce you to some of the people I've met along the way who will help you understand the mystery of athletic aid and help you get your hands on some of the millions of dollars NCA programs hand out every year. Today, we'll hear from New York Times bestselling author Jeff Salingo, a former colleague and friend of mine who knows as much about the college admissions process as anyone in the country. Jeff's book, Who Gets In and Why, is an eye-opening account of the realities of college admissions. Jeff understands colleges and what it takes to get into a good college as much as anyone I know. And no matter what age your kid is or what sport they play, the path to getting a college sports scholarship requires a lot of thinking about what type of college they want to go to and where they can get in. And Jeff shares some great insights about that process. We'll also hear Jeff's thoughts on how students can leverage their sport to gain admission to colleges that in some cases they probably would never have gotten into. How sports have become, in fact, one of the best levers students can use to get into college the value of Division III colleges, which don't give athletic scholarships, but provide preferential admissions to athletes, how much of a boost your sport can give you in the Ivy League admissions process, why a small elite school like Amherst College, with about 1,900 total students, has some 700 intercollegiate athletes, more than SEC powerhouse Alabama, how two-thirds of colleges came out of the pandemic in deficit spending, and what impact that's having on athletic recruitment at big-time universities, and much more. So let's get to it. Here's my conversation with Jeff Salingo. Why are NCAA sports so important to colleges? It really is a big piece of the admissions process, particularly, by the way, beyond just Division I. And in many ways, it plays an important role to enrollment, particularly at Division three colleges, of which is the biggest NCAA division, smaller colleges that really depend on athletes to fill a lot of spots in the class. And so we've seen, for example, over the years, a number of colleges add football, for example, to try to attract more men. We've seen colleges in the South add things like field hockey because field hockey tends to be more popular in the North and they want to get more Northern students. And so many colleges are fielding 20, 24, 26 sports because when you think about all of those roster spots and students want to continue to play in college, that's almost like an automatic seat that you're filling in the freshman class as a result. So in a lot of cases, it's not just that, say, a Division three school is recruiting a kid who's just there to help their sports teams because their sports don't matter to the same extent that they do on a big time campus because they don't bring in as much revenue. But the student represents tuition dollars is what you're getting at, I think. And if you are a division three school and you bring on a football team, that means not just that you have a more diverse student body by bringing on more men, because that's more men you're going to attract to the school. But that's in many cases, that's like families that can afford to pay for the tuition of those schools, which keeps those schools afloat. I think it's an important point, especially now, when you think about the rise of youth sports, the money that is in youth sports now, the money parents spend. And as the NCAA commercial always says, you know, most of these people won't go pro in in the sports. And that's even true. Most of these kids won't go to Division One institutions and play football on Saturday or play their sports on the Big Ten network. 
what ends up happening is that many of these students will end up going to division three schools or division two schools or lower level division one schools and parents, because they invested so much in these sports, still want their kids to play and the kids usually still want to play as well. And so remember, that's a way into for selective colleges, it's a way into college playing that sport. But then at less selective colleges from the institutional standpoint, it's a way to fill an important seat because they know that these students want to go to X college so badly that the parents are willing to pay full tuition in many cases to have that. So you wrote a whole chapter in your book called Finding an Edge, which talks about basically athletes and legacies, which are kids whose parents went to a college and how they can get preferential treatment in the admissions process. Now, we can debate the fairness of the system, but the fact is sports matter to these colleges and universities and not just for football and basketball. So division one schools, as you talk about in your book, field an average of 18 to 19 teams and are allowed to give lots of athletic scholarships. Division three schools can't give athletic aid, but they have almost as many teams to field. And they also have these preferential slots for the best athletes. So there's lots of opportunities to be on the team, but what do the scholarship dollars look like? The scholarship dollars are pretty limited in most of these cases. And I think that when parents and students think, oh, I'm going to play a sport, I'm going to get really good at it so that I get recruited and get a full scholarship, a full ride scholarship, as you've written and spoken about, right? it's a myth in many cases. And so what's not a myth, though, is how much of a hook athletics is, especially at these highly selective colleges that are more and more difficult to get into because you have tens of thousands of applications for so few seats. But there are seats at all of these institutions to fill all those roster spots on the college teams. And so if you have that hook of being an athlete, in many ways, it is like one of the top hooks now. It's a better hook than being a legacy. It's a better hook than almost anything out there. Because again, If you have 24 teams and you have to fill all those roster spots, you're going to have to find students to do that. And that's up to the admissions office to do that every year. There's a part of your book where you talk about this former Princeton professor, Bill Bowen, who wrote a book about a survey he had done of like tens of thousands of athletes at elite schools. There was some dramatic increase that you had in your ability to get in a place like Harvard or Yale if you were an athlete. It was was, was quite incredible. And then in follow-up studies, they also showed how those students performed at college. And many of those athletes, particularly at those highly selective colleges, didn't perform as well. But it's not, as I say in the book, it's not just a thumb on the scale. It's a higher fist. And it's not that I'm against athletes here and athletes getting into college. I think the difference, as I point out in the book, is that we don't give that leg up, that fist on the scale to almost any other, really, to any other extracurricular activity. We don't do that for somebody on the debate team. We don't do that for somebody who is in the musical or plays a musical instrument. We don't do that for any other extracurricular activity except for college athletes. And that, to me, is the unfairness of the system, is that it is such a hook. It is such a fist on the scale compared to almost any, really, compared to anything else that a student would be bringing with their application. So while the odds are not great for you, your kid to get a scholarship or much of a scholarship to play sports, the opportunity that sports can afford them does give them an advantage at a lot of places. And you can use that to your advantage if you're a parent who has spent a lot of money on your kids playing sports. And then maybe hopefully one day you can get them some kind of an edge to get into a better school at least. 
so much. I'm Brad, there's a student that I profile in the book, and I didn't mention his sport because he goes to such a small school that I wasn't trying not to identify him. But here's a kid who did really well in this sport. He had okay test scores and okay grades, and he was pretty good in the sport. And as he said, he would have gotten recruited into a lower tier division one school playing this sport. But what then he discovered is that Amherst and all these other top tier division three liberal arts colleges were after him to play this sport. And he would have never gotten into one of these colleges with his SAT score. But the coach said, if you could get the SAT score up to at least 1200, we'll be able to get you into Amherst and to play, to play the sport. And that's exactly what he did. So instead of using his little chit of sports to get maybe a couple of dollars of a scholarship at a second tier division one school, he used that shit to basically get into a place that's almost impossible to get in, particularly with his test scores and grades, and used it that way instead. And I think when you're thinking about what's the payoff here, is the payoff better to get into a highly selective school that you couldn't get into otherwise and eventually probably hopefully meet the right people and, and get a great job and get the ROI that way? Or is the ROI on the sports scholarship, the full scholarship, which as you said, you're not going to get, maybe you'll get some lunch money. Is that necessarily the better route to go? And again, this kid, and I think increasingly, it's not until you get into high school when you realize these trade-offs, the trade-off is probably better to get into the harder school than it is to get a couple pennies from a school. So well put. This, just to drill down more on this example, I think you called this kid Jack in the book. I'm not yep. even sure if that was his name. You used some numbers with regard to Amherst, which is an elite institution, and they have about 1,900 students based on your reporting at the time. And they had about almost 700 athletes out of those 1,900 students, which is astounding. And that's 36 more athletes than the University of Alabama has. Literally, they have more kids on their campus who play sports. It is a shocking number when you really think about the raw numbers, especially given how small Amherst is. How small Amherst is, there's so 36% of Amherst students are athletes who play an intercollegiate athletic sport, an NCAA sport, and 2% of Alabama's students are athletes. Yep. So what that says to me is, you know, and I can almost assure you that of those nearly 700 athletes, almost 40% of Amherst students, many of them wouldn't have gotten into Amherst had they not been athletes. So these schools, the different coaches at these schools get essentially slots that they can use to help gain admittance for some of these kids. Now, that's not to say that they can be terrible students. Like this kid in particular was a really good student. No, he was a good student, but he wouldn't have gotten in without sports. What advantages do you have besides gaining admission to these schools? Are there ways that there's kind of a wink, wink, nod, nod that happens in terms of Division three? They don't necessarily give athletic aid, but they can find aid that essentially convinces you to go there. Oh, they definitely could use their financial aid in any way they want because they could use it as a merit-based scholarship. There, there might be some financial need for these students. They wouldn't classify it as a, as a, as a scholarship necessarily, right? Because they can't, but they could classify it as a merit-based or a, essentially a tuition discount if they really want these students. But the fact of the matter is, Brad, in some cases, they don't need to necessarily offer that discount. For two reasons. One is many of these kids come from upper middle income families. In fact, looking at the Amherst thing, for example, it was incredible. I think of the athletes, like something like 90% came from the upper income. They were mostly white in many cases. So they don't really need to, most of these institutions don't need to offer discounts to these students, especially by the way, if they have good sports teams. So if I'm a great volleyball player, I'm a great baseball player, 
I will tell my parents, I really want to go to X because I still want to play. And in fact, we see some evidence of what I called in the book, trading down academically. So if a if an institution is known for such having such a great athletics program, even at division three, the kid might say to their parents, I really want to go there to continue my sport. They're so good. The parents are willing to pay full price because they just, by the way, paid so much money to get to that point. The kid may be trading down academically, might be able to go to a better school academically, but they sports is really driving the decision there. And colleges know that, so they don't have to necessarily give out as much aid. So let's go back for a second to what we were talking about before, and that was regarding opportunities and how many scholarship dollars are actually available, particularly in Division One and Division Two. Most people think of a scholarship athlete as a football or a basketball player or someone who's getting a full scholarship. But in the reality, most kids play equivalency sports where they get partial athletic aid and sometimes only a few hundred dollars. So some schools are only partially funding the partial scholarship sports too. I think according to research I did, and I think you reported in your book, some schools like in one case, George Mason only funded one third of the dozen softball scholarships they were allowed to give. And the University of Cincinnati only gave about two scholarships to its entire men's track team. They're allowed to give six times more than that. And there's 40 kids on the team. So literally the equivalent of two full scholarships for 40 men. That's the reality that we're talking about with a lot of these schools. How have budget cutbacks in the constrained budget environment affected those kinds of opportunities and scholarship dollars for kids? It's clear that many colleges and universities, at the, particularly at the Division One level, are facing big deficits in some cases. Two-thirds of colleges came out of the pandemic in deficit spending. As many colleges and universities, especially at the Division One level, at all levels, really don't make money on their athletics department. And there's this arms race, like, particularly at the Division One level, to keep up. So all these things are impacting how much cash they really have to do this. And so again, what they're increasingly relying on is a student who emotionally really wants to continue to play and parents who want to please their students by giving them that opportunity to play in college, and parents who say, I've invested so much to get to this point. I'm not going to say, I'm not going to let my kid play in college because they're going to want to. So again, colleges don't have to, except at the very elite level of very elite athletes and very elite sports, they don't really have to provide that much to let students come there One of my favorite parts of your book is actually the appendix. So if you read Jeff's book, basically you'll read these stories of these three institutions where Jeff was able to gain access to a behind-the-scenes look at the admissions process. It's a fascinating story. I would highly recommend the book. But one of the most interesting parts is the appendix, where you basically say one of the common questions you got as you were reporting this book was like, what's the best advice for my kid as I'm thinking about this admissions process and how to get my kid into a school that they want to go to? And you gave several tips, things students should focus on as they're preparing for the college search, which I think is applicable to kids in the sports scholarship pursuit as well. What were a few of the biggest things on that list? I think they really need to find a good academic, social, and financial fit. Particularly around academics, you want to make sure that you're going to a place where you're going to swim along with other students, that the classmates you have are not going to be so far ahead of you academically that you're going to struggle to keep up. But you also don't want to go to a place, and this is the problem with trading down, by the way, for athletics. You don't want to go to a place where you're going to just goof off because nobody is really working that hard. So that's part of finding the right academic fit. You want to look, go to a place where people are going to care about you, where you're going to find mentors. Coaches, I think, are very important in this. Faculty members, 
who show up to their office hours and you could show up to their office hours to talk to them. You want to look at the ROI of the degree. You want to look at, is the degree that you're going to pursue there, are you going to get the money afterwards that is necessary to pay off that degree or pay off that debt? And again, this goes back to this idea of, oh, we're willing to pay to go to X college to play Y sport. But if the college and the major that you're going to have is not going to have that much of a payoff in the end, is it worth it for those four years to play that sport? Because again, you're most likely not going to go to play pro sports unless you're one of these lucky folks in the in the World Series. There's somebody from Millersville University, of course, playing for the Astros, but that doesn't happen very often, right? And so again, if you think, well, this is worth it to me, I'm going to go into debt or I'm going to pay full price to go to X college so my son or daughter can play the sport. And then you go in that much debt, they get a so-so degree, so-so education, they're done with the sport four years later, but they have to live with that degree for the rest of their life. And so there's it's a balancing act. And what I'm seeing so often though, Brad, is because we invest so much in youth sports now that parents, they feel like the payoff is college and, and okay, I'm not going to get that scholarship, but at least my kid can still play and they'll play for a pretty good team. Is that really worth it at the end of the day though, if the degree itself or the education itself is not as good? This next question is kind of personal, and it's something you and I have talked about as parents of young kids who are playing sports without sounding like a hypocrite, because I've honestly been guilty of this with my own kids. But why do you think parents get so enamored with the idea of having their kid get a sports scholarship, even with the odds being what they are? I really don't know. I think that some of it is parents who are looking for, they understand that the competition for seats at colleges, particularly selective ones, is more competitive than ever before. And they are looking for any edge. So it's why we sign our kids up for all those after-school classes. It's why we try to get them into the best high school. It's why we pay for homes and good school districts. I think it's just an extension of that. We know that sports matters. It has this outsized influence in, in college admissions. And I've told you the story, Brad, and when people know I've written a book on college admissions, whether we're at the pool, whether we're on the soccer sideline, I'll always have parents come over to me and talk to me about this hook. And so it's clear that it's on their mind. I think they start by thinking of the scholarship dollars, but eventually they realize their kid's never going to be so great that they're going to get that scholarship. But by God, they're going to get into that harder college because of that sport. One big takeaway I had in reading your book was that admissions officials, especially at popular colleges, are just inundated with applications. Sometimes they only have a few minutes to look at your application and decide if they're going to accept you. So basically, the takeaway for me as a parent is you better learn how to stand out. And sports alone, in many cases, won't be your only ticket. So how do you make yourself stand out besides your sport? I think a lot of it has to do with the courses you take in high school and the grades you get in those courses. because. You really have to, especially at these selective colleges, those are critically important to get in. And it's 50, 60% of what a college is considering when they look at a, a student's application. They want somebody who's just deeply committed to something. And that could include a sport. For those students who just sign up for every club because they're available or they know, wow, it's junior year and I'm going to apply for college next year. So as a result, I'm going to need to sign up for every club that's available. College admissions officers see that stuff and they question whether the kid is committed to anything. So I think the other thing to try to make yourself uh, stand out is show some sort of commitment doesn't mean that that's the only thing you do. It doesn't mean you have to become the captain of the team or the president of the club, but they like students who show some commitment. 
There's another phrase that you use in the book and that is widely known among people in the college and university world, and that is demonstrated interest. So you have to do a good job of letting a college know that you think they're special too, like that you're actually really interested in going to their school. What are some ways that students can make sure they show demonstrated interest? I think a lot of it is about, first of all, every email that you get from that college, open it up. They track that stuff. When the admissions rep comes to your high school, go to see that admissions rep, maybe even talk to them because they're recording that stuff. Go to campus tours if you can, show up to that. Just You have to show that you're interested in them just as much as they're interested in you, or else they'll just think, I'm, we're the safety school, or we're one of 10 schools that this kid's applying to. They're really not that interested in because the colleges are so interested in yield, and yield meaning how many students accept their acceptance. They want to make sure that the students that they're accepting are actually going to go. Another thing you talk about is focusing on the right fit for you and not just the name brand of the school. And a thing you say in the book is mindsets and skills matter more than colleges and majors. Can you explain what you mean by that? Most people who are in jobs right now, if you ask them, what did you major in and does that have anything to do with your job? I think you're going to find, especially as they get further away from college, that their major has really little to do with what their what their job is now. But what the skills they learn in that major or outside that major are much more critical. And to me, really focus on what am I going to learn over the course of four years, both inside and outside the classroom that are critically important in the job market today, whether that's problem-solving skills, teamwork skills, which of course you can learn on a on an athletics team. Things like that are, are much more important than what you're going to major in. Another thing you say is think twice about the money. And I think you say this twice in your advice in the book. The less debt you have coming out of school, the more freedom you have after college. And I think that's a thing, you know, that a lot of times people aren't thinking about in the recruitment and admissions process. If you're a kid, you should probably know how much money your parents make and how much they're willing to spend to send you to college. And those are conversations that you need to have as well. College is such an emotional good in in so many ways. And I think that we tend to let emotion wash over the decision that we're actually making to go to college. And so what's happening is that I think most parents don't want to disappoint their kids. And I think that most kids have no idea what a $40,000 debt bill means or what a fifty dollars or $60,000 tuition bill means. And so I think that you really have to have serious conversations about what do we want out of college? What are we willing to pay? Who's going to pay? I think if you have those conversations early on in the process, and I think this goes back to the athletics question, if you really think athletics is going to pay my bill the whole way, you really have to have a serious conversation about that early on because it may not, as we've talked about, or maybe the kid doesn't want to play in college or the parents don't want them to play. There's a lot of conversations I think we assume and we assume them too long in the process. To go back to Jack in the book, I just wanted to say one more thing about this. Um, this kid who eventually went to Amherst and who was a decent student, but probably could have gotten a little bit of money to go play a Division One sport, but chose a place like Amherst. Wanted to think, say one more thing on him. He says in the book, coaches are always shuffling around recruits. They have different needs and different wants at different times of the year. It's often about being in the right place at the right time. What do you think he means by that? Oh, what he really means by that is that the other thing about college admissions, especially when it comes to recruits, is that you might be high on the recruiting list one day and much lower 10 days later. And I think that's the problem when, again, you're counting on athletics to go to certain schools. And I even saw this with Jack 
in the book, as given that's his quote, right? He was highly being highly recruited from, I think, Middlebury or some other schools first. Then Amherst was on his radar. Then it dropped off his radar and the coach wasn't getting back to him. Remember, the coaches are, they're balancing a lot of different kids at the same time. It doesn't work like other admissions processes. Like when you get mail from Princeton and they want you to come, as just a regular student, they're not going to say two weeks later, we're going we're gonna to ask for that piece of mailing back because we don't want you anymore. That's what's happening in athletics is that they might want you one week and not want you a couple of weeks later because they already have that third baseman for the baseball team, for example. And so that's what I think Jack is really talking about there is that you know he got the right score at the right time. The coach was needing him at that point. It's much more of a matching system with college athletics and admissions than it is for regular students with admissions. That makes a lot of sense. I think what he also means is because of the transfer portal and things like that, coaches are losing players. Coaches need to make offers and they want to hear quickly, oftentimes, maybe within 48 hours, whether you'll accept that offer. And if you don't, then they'll move on to the next person. And so I think it's a matter of being in the right place at the right time a lot of times. And how do you make sure you are in the right place at the right time? Is it just a matter of being in continual contact with coaches and keeping them updated on where you are in the process? Yes, I think that there's, we, we need more transparency on both sides. And again, I think that students, they've, coaches do this every year. It really is. This is part of the thing I like, I hate about the whole admissions process. It's a game. And there are some people who are the clear experts at it, and they're on the one side of the table, meaning they are the admissions officers and the coaches. And then there's the other side of the game. And that's the parents, the students, the athletes who may only, they only go through this once. If you have one kid or two kids, you're only going to go through this process once or twice. The information division between those two is so great where, again, one side has all the information, holds all the cards, and the other side doesn't. And so the best advice is to have transparency on both sides. And so if you're a student, have that transparency with the coaches and the admissions office. And how do you get them to be transparent with you? (laughs) Do you just ask the kinds of questions like how much do you fund your program, things like that? Or what are ways that you can, without annoying them that you're asking too much, still find out what you need? Well, I think that you definitely need to, and it might even be good to talk to other athletes at the institution or other students who went to your high school and graduated a couple of years before them, what are the things they wish they knew when they were seniors? I think those are the best questions to ask. So you are a parent. You've got at least one daughter who's interested in a sport competitively. What have you learned from watching other parents and or watching your own child that maybe could be helpful for people in terms of seeking an athletic scholarship? The thing that I worry about is just is burnout on, on the sport. At some point, you really do have to focus on a particular sport and you have to put all of yourself into it in order to get that scholarship. But by the time you get that scholarship, you might be burned out on the sport. And so to me, it's really about balance. And that's why in so many ways, I think using the sport as a hook to get in, which doesn't mean you don't have to work hard at the sport. You still have to work hard at the sport. And focusing less on getting that money is probably a healthier way of thinking about the process. If the money comes, it's gravy. But the shit of using that sport as a way in is a much easier, not easier, but it's a better way of thinking about that balance in the sport. 
One of the last questions I want to ask you was, you've been very involved at your own alma mater, Ithaca College, and you've seen things happen there related to sports. You wouldn't necessarily think of Ithaca as a sports powerhouse, but you told me recently that there are players there who could easily play Division One sports or that are being recruited by Division One institutions. And what makes them want to go to a place like Ithaca? So in many ways, they want to go to a small college. They're going to be captain on these teams. They want to be engaged in a athletics department that really cares about them. What I see at Ithaca is a nice combination of good athletics and good academics coming together to really engage students in the undergraduate experience. To me, it's the healthiest balance. And I'm not just saying Ithaca has this. I think there's a lot at the Division three level, particularly, that balances the idea between athletics and academics. Because I will tell you, based on, Brad, my last book, There Is Life After College, that employers love to hire athletes. Those commercials of the enterprise rent-a-car company loving athletes during March Madness. That's true. They love athletes because they've learned how to fail. They've shown up to, at, on time. They, know, they have self-discipline. They know how to work in teams. All of those things, I'm not saying you don't get that at Division One. But at Division One, there's so much of a focus on, on, on such being an elite athlete and potentially going on to the professional leagues. Where at the other divisions, there's, I think there's a much more of a balance. And really, truthfully, it's much more of the student athlete. Where at Division One, it's much more of the athlete student. And that's the thing that I think is happening at some of these institutions. So you're pretty bullish on D3 institutions. At least you're saying, open your eyes to this possibility, people. Like Division One is sometimes seen as the holy grail, but Division Three is a pretty good deal too. I, and I think it is. If you're an elite athlete and you're going to go pro in a sport, go for it, obviously. I grew up in Pennsylvania. I understand why you would want to play at like one of the Big Ten universities, right? If you can. But there's nothing wrong with using this, as I said, this shit to get into a really good school where you're going to have a great academic experience, a great athletic experience, and the payoff of the degree might be there in the long run. Jeff, thanks so much. Everyone, definitely make sure you check out Jeff's book, Who Gets In and Why. And thanks for coming on the show today, Jeff. It was great to be here. And uh, thanks for having me. That's all for this time. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the show so you don't miss any episodes. One last note before we go. As we head into the new year, I'm looking for a handful of listeners to share some feedback on this podcast. If you're a regular listener and have two minutes to spare, drop me a line at bradwolverton at gmail.com and I'll send you a brief anonymous survey. See you next time.